to agrifica.com, a news and content publishing platform where you will find information, data, and resources about agribusiness, energy, and environment. Coffee has been valued since the beginning for its stimulant effect, but it is so much more than that. Uh, welcome, uh, Han and uh, Vaishal. Uh, nice meeting you, and thank you for accepting my interview today. Um, we are going to be talking about your movie, Caffeinated. Uh, so just before we get started, perhaps if you don't mind just introducing yourselves, uh, it's better than, to, from instead of me introducing you, better be the, you yourself introducing yourself. So who wants to get started? Han, you go for this. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Han Nguyen. I am a documentary filmmaker here in uh, Los Angeles. I've been um, making documentaries for over 10 years. Uh, I, I started, um, actually I start, started when I was 17 um, uh, back in Kansas City, Missouri. I, start, I, I went to college in, uh, um, in San Francisco. Uh, that that's where I, re I really honed in on, on my skills um, with telling stories and particularly documentaries. Um, and then I moved to to Los Angeles to kind of further uh, expand those skills. Beautiful. Thank you. And we'll, we'll dig deeper a little bit uh, later on. <laughs> Vishal? Yes. So my name is Vishal Salanki. I'm originally from India, from uh, Mumbai. And uh, I came to the U.S. around 15 years ago for my postgraduate studies in film. I have a bachelor's in applied art and communication studies. And then I studied cinematography and directing in Los Angeles. And then I've been working in the film industry since. Um, it's been 15 years uh, approximately. And I also teach at Santa Monica College, which is a community college here in California. Uh, I teach cinematography there once a week and uh, uh, both Han and I freelance a lot um, on different projects, uh, documentaries uh, or videos of uh, films. Um, we freelance uh, here in Los Angeles and uh, yeah, we, we enjoy what we do and uh, Caffeinated was one such example. Um, it was an exciting journey uh, we took together. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you for that. So in terms of uh, caffeinated, how long did it take you to make this film? It was, it was a, approximately five years. And um, because it, it was a passion pro project, we just, I mean, I, I think at a time we, we, we barely knew each other. But this, this project and this experience really like sort of sealed our brotherhood in a way um <laughs> yeah it took it took five it took five years um we did it uh in our like any free time we had any money we had uh just kind of bootstrapped and and um we, we made it happen it, it was our first well, it was my first um featured documentary um I, I I just went in and and just kind of it was pretty ambitious for 
like to add something, uh, Vaishal? Or? Yeah, I mean, it, it took four to five years, as Han said. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were also freelancing on other projects, doing day jobs at the same time. Um, so we had to kind of work in chunks. Um, and this is this is slightly before equipment became so cheap and, and everybody started filming nowadays everybody has a fancy camera on zoom <laughs> um, so this is slightly before that movement so it was uh, still uh, more tough and documentaries were also they've been there for a long time but but nowadays uh, an audience watches way more documentaries than they used to watch uh, uh, eight years ago you know so uh, it was at a time when things still needed a slightly larger push uh, than they do today. And uh, so we worked with that and then we worked with, uh, we synchronized it also with some of the coffee seasons and harvest seasons. Uh, and then we went to those countries depending on, uh, you know, where we could maximize the filming opportunities at the right time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Han mentioned that uh, this was uh, at the beginning of your friendship and brotherhood and so on. Uh, so, how did you how did you come about making this movie about coffee? So, where was the idea? Were you in a coffee shop and saying, "Hey, you know, uh, I wonder where this cup of coffee came from"? How did how did it come about? Uh, my my dad is a, a big uh, coffee drinker. I mean, coffee and and cigarettes is the only two things that he uh, <laughs> consumes on a daily basis. Um, and, and so I grew, I, I grew up with that, but uh, I could never really drink coffee at the time. Mm -hmm. It was too strong. Um, even when I started um, the, the idea of making this documentary, still I couldn't drink um, coffee. And, and so, I think at some point I, I was just curious as to, you know, why this sort of beverage, you know, coffee brings a lot of people together. It brings, it bridges a lot of cultures and every culture has a way of brewing coffee, you know, this like sort of morning or night ritual. And, and so I was just fascinated with that. And it started a curiosity of where coffee came from. Um, and so the first thing I did was uh, apply to be a barista. Because I figured, you know, if I'm going <laughs> to learn about coffee, I should uh, be in coffee. And so I applied uh, and worked for a few months at a local uh, co coffee shop here in Los Angeles. And from there, uh, I, I really sort of fell in love with coffee. It's the the first time I had coffee. It was nothing like I've like ever tasted before. It, it wasn't bitter. It tasted of fruit, blueberries to uh, to be exact. And there was just so much nuances within coffee that that you know like you just wouldn't know from drinking coffee every day, right? And so that's how it started. Um, and from there, it just kind of, I just kind of fell deeper and, and deeper into, you know, figuring out what, what coffee is all about, where it came from, um, the processes, 
and, and along the way, those are um, like from from the movie, we sort of learned as we go. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just a beautiful experience uh, for me personally. Wonderful. And how did you meet Vaishal and said, hey, let's make this documentary? Or Vaishal, how did you meet Han and he said, let's go do the documentary? Who's, who, who met who or it actually engages us? Well, it was, it was very organic in that sense. What had happened was uh, she showed me something she was shooting um, uh, and I saw it and then uh, she said, I may make a documentary short about it, like a shorter version or something like that. Because she was still playing with the idea of how to make it and, you know, in the fun of it. Uh, and that's when I was like, okay, like, like maybe we can team up and uh, do something bigger on a larger scale and do a feature. Uh, I had worked on other features as a cinematographer before uh, over the years. And it had enough scope to, you know, think of it on, on the larger scale. So it just happened where she was already doing it uh, as her idea. And then I was like, okay, let's, uh, let's make it uh, more of a bigger uh, project. And, and that's when we decided that this could be something uh, like 80 minutes on into a bigger movie. Lovely. So you said it took you four to five years to make this uh, documentary. What were your, the, the greatest challenges that you faced when making this film? Uh, I think to tackle such a big project and, 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 and such a broad, um, a broad topic, um, we just went in with kind of uh, like the approach of let's cover everything. Um, but in doing that, we, I mean, we learned so much, but we also have so much material and so so many interviews that it was overwhelming to to try and craft a story um, with what we uh, learned and, and with what we filmed. And so the biggest challenge for for me uh, was to like figure out what story we want to tell. Because there there are so many. Uh, so uh, so many great stories, but you, you know we can only fit into an eighty minute uh, film, mm -hmm. and, and so the the biggest challenge was trying to find um, which moments, which story to highlight, um, yeah, and to make a cohesive uh, story that you know can engage the audience. Mm, beautiful. Bashad, would you like to add? Well, uh, I mean, so on the creative side, Han just explained uh, what we were going through. Uh, and and we had over 130 interviews. So a part of it is also that we both were relatively younger, correct, age-wise. <laughs> um, and uh, documentary as a form was also something new to us back then. Uh, and now we've worked so much more in other projects with different films. So whenever you are jumping into a new uh, medium, it needs uh, time to, you know, uh, get introduced to it uh, and how it talks to you as an artist. And uh, a 
apart from that, of course, the other challenges were obviously, um, I mean, in retrospect, four years is an average time for a documentary or even in fact on time, it's not a very long time. Um, but back then, uh, financially, it was uh, taking a toll on us uh, to, you know, uh, to uh, these trips abroad and this and that, but at the same time, uh, you know, we were confident that we were getting really good footage, which which kept us going, and we were also confident that we had the right people within the coffee industry on our side. So it's like whatever our challenges were, they were really mitigated by. Uh, you know, having the right people on board because they brought with them a certain uh, brain trust, which which could uh, allow us to navigate those challenges more easily. Mm. So you talked about um, the the financial constraints as a, as an independent, two independent filmmakers working the, doing this in parallel to other of uh, work. Um, how did you? You said you bootstrapped it. Uh, what were the challenges in reaching out to foundations and, and so on to actually get some grants as independent filmmakers to be able to, you know, um, complement your own uh, investment into this film? And you want me to go for this one? Yeah, you go ahead. Okay, so I think um, in terms of producing, what happens is uh, many times when, when foundations uh, start seeing bigger corporate names involved, they already start thinking that this is a marketing gag or something like that. Mm. Um, and, and for the most part, that thought process is justified because mm. many times that happens. But at the same time, uh, we were very conscious that we did not want to promise into the final cut any specific entity that we are interviewing or filming with. There was no guarantee you'll be in the movie. We, we were very clear about that, which meant that we did not want to take any favors from anybody who's in the film. Uh, second thing is, uh, so we, we did not really apply for foundation fund because foundation funding sees things in a very different light. And when you talk about food documentaries, unless it's heavily focused on a specific social issue, which they can see clearly way in advance of what the filmmakers are actually going to shoot, then only they will fund it. Uh, and then that restricts you to follow that story, you know, uh, somewhat. Uh, because in a way your grant, your written application is uh, going to say we are going to do so, 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 and then this is how the project will look. But then we, we were following our curiosity into the journey of coffee. And we were hoping that the viewer will also be on that journey together with us. Like, hey, how does this happen? How does that happen? Like, so, uh, which means that we did not want to promise anybody that this is how the project is going to look because we ourselves did not know. Okay. And we wanted to leave it like that because it was more of a 
organic sculpting process of let's see how this shapes up as a story. Um, so what we did was we used a lot of our personal funding from our day jobs and other film jobs. And whenever we set a target that, okay, three months from now, we are going to Nicaragua or Honduras or whatever, and we would start saving up. And then we did have a, a producer who took care of all the airfare. Mm -hmm. He's also a travel agent. Mm -hmm. So so that took care of all our flights. And then when we went um, to those countries, we stayed with the farmers mm -hmm. because we are not going to climb down 5,000 feet uh, just to f sleep overnight. It's mm -hmm. so much. Uh, and it also brings in a certain intimacy in the way they interacted with us the next day because we were their guests also um, we went on the farm together at five o'clock in the morning to get the sunrise so it, it was all a family uh, in the end uh, and there are some journalistic rules which ask you to don't do this and don't do that but i think uh, it was important for us to bring that uh, intimacy of what that world looks like you know what does life of a farmer look like for example in Nicaragua there was no electricity where we were I mean it was the first time we had to think like okay how many batteries do we have or uh, are we going to finish this interview on time before this battery drains off so uh, coming back to funding uh, yeah it was her money my money my I had a couple of producer friends who put in some money and then what we did was, once we were midway, we showed a work sample to some other people who wanted to donate to the project. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. by then the suspense was gone, like how is this project going to look? So we would do these uh, in-house meetings where we show people a movie, get their feedback, and then somebody would say, okay, maybe my company or my friend or whatever can donate something, you know? And uh, some of the donations came in kind, right? Somebody will say, like, I used to work in a restaurant and the, one of the largest uh, color laboratories, they used to dine there. And he had told me, when you finish the film, let me know. I'll help you out. And it's the largest post-production facility in the country, in the US and one of the largest in the world. And once we finished, I got back to him. I said that I've stopped working at the restaurant, but here is the film, we need your services. and he he's he helped us out so it was a lot of favors friends uh, donors and uh, we ourselves and a lot of faith from our parents and family that uh, i guess whatever they are doing uh, <laughs> one day it will get completed and it and people may like it mm, yeah. lovely han you want would you like to add uh... well i mean like I see caffeinated as sort of our love, our love letter to coffee. And I hope it's shown, you know, it, it really showed through because uh, like Vishal said, like we, we, we traveled with, you know, Jeff Watts, who's the green buyer of Intelligentsia to, uh, um, to Guatemala. We stayed at the farm, the, the, uh, the farmers um, with the farmers, and, and their family. And, and so that like, that kind of experience and 
just like deep diving into not, not only coffee, but how the farmers live their, you know, co coffee is their way of life. What we've seen in the past 10 years and we're seeing right now is the rediscovery of coffee as a culinary experience. The real true coffee houses have rediscovered that sense of specialness. Coffee uniformly comes, it seems, from truly beautiful places. Once we start to look, we peel back the curtain. We see that there are a lot of people behind the coffee who depend on its production for their livelihoods. The farmers trust us to really deliver on the promise of that coffee. It's like I'm giving my final touch in a painting. To think that a tiny bean can humble an individual. I appreciate uh, the, the fact that you talked about that you wanted to have full editorial control and, and making sure that to, in the process, integrate others that um, are able to, to help you make this uh, film a reality. Um, so let's talk about the coffee industry. What is the most striking uh, thing that you've learned from this, this experience making this film, in, but in the coffee industry? I think, um, I mean, it, it's been a while now, and I'm sure the, the industry has changed a lot. But from like when we were making Caffeinated, uh, the most striking thing to me was how many hands goes into making our cup of coffee. You know, we, we talk about that, that, that whole process from, from being to, into cup, but at the time it, it was a revelation for me in, in terms of like, wow, you know, just this simple coffee, this cup of, co of coffee that people drink every morning. And, and I see my dad drink it every morning, but not knowing like the story, the, 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 the history, the, the labor that goes behind it. Um, that was really like uh, eye-opening to me. And it, it from that experience, it kind of changed the way I look at food, the way I look at, you know, crafts, the way I look at everything. Mm. Yeah, at the time at which we filmed it, this is like 2012, uh, 2011, somewhere around there, um, you know, things were really new we both live in los angeles and and los angeles is kind of behind seattle and portland and all all those at least back then it was new in its coffee scene and it was just emerging uh, so we were able to kind of see things more objectively because everything was coming at us in a fresh way right mm -hmm. and we were traveling to those cities also shooting and then coming back to our own city we were able to see it as a third party, right? Um, what struck me the most was overall the excitement uh, of, you know, this is a very, uh, it's like American entrepreneurship meets um, a beverage mm -hmm. and meets uh, a community which will uh, want that beverage. So I think it was just this intersection of Yes, let's open a coffee shop. I think this is a cool idea. Um, 
and this coffee tastes great. Uh, I'm going to get that one. I like this Brazilian one. So it was just this entire flux of energy and um, where you felt that you were in the middle of something interesting, very interesting, because what I do like about America is the infinite possibilities. Uh, if it's people, if American customers like something, then it's a promise to a business. I mean, it's we are a very consuming country, um, which most of the world either likes us or hates us for. Mm -hmm. But as a business owner and as a coffee industry, you just know that, okay, there is a certain promise in this. If I get it in the right neighborhood, do it the right way, and if luck supports me, and if the people support me, this will take off. So I think that excitement to me is is something which is very very fascinating you don't see it a lot in other countries they are more conservative in their approach um, and you don't even see it as much in other industries uh, as much as and now you could blame it on the caffeine uh, but at the same time uh, there is this i've got very close myself to be like oh it would be great to own a coffee shop one day so <laughs> so that's how close we are so that idea of, uh, you know, coffee itself and the excitement it brings around us is something fascinating. So in terms of, um, because you said earlier on, uh, Vashal, uh, that you had an opportunity to be with the coffee farmers uh, and really experience firsthand what they go through. Can you give us a glimpse of what is the journey? And when I was, with Han uh, in Nicaragua. I don't know, we went to Nicaragua twice. And, and uh, you know, I've always grown up in a city. I've been a city guy in Mumbai and Los Angeles, very urban neighborhoods. And the farm also made something out of chicken. And I ate it and it was delicious. And then we went for a walk outside and I saw a cage of chicken. And she said, so you like that, huh? You, you found it delicious huh? in Spanish, she told me. And I'm like, yes. And it just struck me that this chicken did not come from a grocery store. Like this chicken we ate was just right here, right? And, and so it's a different way of existing with nature, which we were exposed to. Uh, that was one example. The second example, uh, you know, when we were in Guatemala, like my... I thought I'll wear old shoes, they will get dirty. So it's fine, I can throw them away after the trip. And then I go and I start slipping on the mountains. Mm -hmm. And we are at 5,000 feet and I look down and I'm like, oh my God, I froze for a second because I couldn't move forward or backward. And it just showed us what uh, life was for them on a daily basis, you know. Um, so those were some of those introductions that okay welcome to life outside of your own city and this is how the world works and i've seen and been exposed to that in india also to a degree but um i think that part and and not to disregard i think the most important aspect of it all was how a large-hearted all the farmers were everybody we went to at least four or five farmers homes and they were so generous uh, 
with everything they had they were so warm and uh, even with the most minimal of resources some of them were uh, you know we would go and pull out hibiscus brew fresh hibiscus tea or they will show us how a cacao plant is opened up and you know so I think that and the fourth part, I think, which is extremely important is their discipline to their work ethic. And um, there is a certain reverence to work and to nature in how you live. You know, you recycle everything. Everything just has a natural flow of moving around. You know, you grow things, you put the fertilizer, you get lunch at a certain time, that discipline and the work ethic. And uh, yeah, there were just too many things uh, we could learn from them because uh, life life moves uh, at a different pace there, and uh, it it forces you to be very attuned to uh, how nature works because you're on a farm, you're not in an office in a cubicle. You know, so mm-hmm. for me, those were some of the things that struck out their work ethic, their warmth, and their closeness and proximity to uh, nature. Yeah, and I mean, in the film, we 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 showed the process as a montage, but when we were there, I mean, each bag of of green coffee would weighs a ton, mm-hmm. and they had to you know put it on their 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 back climb up you know one two thousand feet or climb down and it's just just up and down up and down like that and you know and they they pick their coffees by hand and these coffees grow at it has to be grown at certain elevation and so you know going through those those hills and is it's a very dangerous job as well Mm -hmm. and so to just witness that is you know, it, it makes you think, like it makes me think of how I, I'm consuming things and, and how I'm li- I'm living my life. And, you know, it's just, we live in access, you know. <laughs> and, and so t- to be there and to witness, you know, the, the lack of uh, electricity or, or the, the lack of um, certain equipment to make their life easier. Uh, but what they had in the abundance was just like, just a joy and a, um, a pride, a sense of pride for their work. And so that, that was really, um, it was very touching to, to witness that and to, you know, take away some of that um, and bring it back to my personal life as well. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I know you interviewed the baristas as well, and I know you uh, and had tried to be a barista as well, or have been a, a barista. So give us a glimpse of why the baristas, why the end. You know, you went from the the farmer, and now you also showed the end result. Can you just share with us about that? Yeah, I think. I mean, there's like because there's so much care and work that goes uh, goes into growing coffee and roasting you know the, the last step is is the barista presenting the coffee to to you right and so i mean baristas get a lot, a lot of bad rep for you know 
it's just they care. <laughs> they, they care about the coffee and they care about how, you know, about presenting that coffee of the day to you in the best way. Um, and I was barely a barista. I was <laughs> trying to learn uh, just how to make coffee uh, with like, you know, with going in in the morning, dialing in the coffee, knowing what like uh, the coffee cha changes throughout the day and throughout the, the week. And so dial dialing it in, uh, you know, trying to find the best technique or the best way to present that coffee to the customer that day. Um, you know, I, I can like, I, I took a lot of pride in that. And, and I know a lot, a lot of the, the, the baristas do too. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just that, you know, that final step where you wanna honor the process that's been you know that what it took to get here um so that final step to the consumer has to be uh with the utmost respect and myself no i think so baristas are the final gateway correct so it's like um, if you get a soup you know you want your tailor to be really good because the cotton farmer or the wool or all those things in the end the tailor will go through the tailor and you want it to fit right so it's the same way the baristas were they could either enhance things or ruin things and they were a very crucial part it's like the finish line you know mm -hmm. to your cup of coffee so we we focused on them as well for that reason you mentioned it as well earlier on in terms of people are opening coffee shop, the entrepreneurship of coffee business and so on and so forth. But the, and you've interviewed some of the baristas as well, right? What have you learned about the baristas you've interviewed? And what have you uh, also learned in terms of the coffee shop industry? Uh, is that for me, the question? For both of you. For bo <laughs> well, I I think, so let me give you one example. This is something that happened today. Um, so many times, if you don't live with a family, like uh, my, my uh, roommates were asleep and I went to the coffee shop this morning and uh, there was a new employee. She took down my order as a, a double espresso instead of a macchiato and the barista knows me and they're like why is he getting double espresso today instead of, of with, with some milk so when i saw and she was a new employee on the cashier so when i saw i saw there's no milk in it i needed some milk um so she's like we both had this thing where they did you order this and i'm like is this my order uh and then we realized there was a mistake by the new employee she's like uh, don't worry, I'll just make a new one because this won't taste good if I just use the old espresso. And I knew I had to come to this call. At the same time, I I was very uh, happy about her care to do it right. Right? Uh, and they had a big line. She still did it. And it goes to say that sometimes baristas are the first people you're going to meet in the morning. Mm. Uh, and at least for me, 
a lot depends on my first couple of interactions in the day. Uh, I, I mean, I have a pretty wide latitude for social acceptance, but at the same time, it's always good to get a good start day to day. And I think uh, resource can play a very crucial role in, in that. So that kind of focuses on the social aspect. Uh, another thing is, if you are asking the question in a larger way as to what was one thing you saw in common, I think at heart, a lot of them were social people. You know, uh, uh, they liked, if they, if they had the opportunity, they would strike a good conversation with people. Um, and it kind of, it's that glue which coffee also has as a social lubricant. And when baristas have it, it kind of just brings everything together. So that was something I felt which was common where that social aspect uh, in general uh, was something common. And then excitement, excitement about coffee. You know, uh, most of them are really excited about what they do and uh, they do it in a very dignified way. So that was something else which we saw as a recurring pattern because we interviewed some of the best coffee shops. So, so just to get hired and to stay employed by the owners of these coffee shops means you at least made it that far, correct? So you must be doing most things right. And uh, that's where we found this curiosity about coffee and excitement and then the social aspect. Uh, those three were something we saw as a recurring thing within baristas. Hmm. Hunt, would you like to add to that? I agree with Vishal. Uh, the, the, I think I didn't, um, it was surprising to, to see how genuinely like excited the baristas are about coffee. And, you know, that feeling and that excitement, it is infectious. And so wherever we went, it, it was just like that, you know, instant welcoming of, you know, with us into their coffee shops or, or you know, in, in, and like uh, preparing what, what they thought was the best, uh, you know, coffee method for for that coffee uh, that was brought in. This is something that in terms of uh, Starbucks, the, you know, the big corporations and so on. Um, what if you even from your personal experience and especially making this documentary, um, what is the uh, clear distinction that you saw between, uh, a, a, you know, a, a brand such as uh, the Starbucks industry coffee versus the smaller, uh, you know, artisanal type of coffee shops. Smaller coffee shops obviously have more intimacy, right? You're not going to have the same lines. Generally, there are there were a couple of coffee shops like Vivace in Seattle, crazy lines, uh, Intelligentsia in Los Angeles, and uh, again, a very busy coffee shop. 
So in terms of a coffee shop structure, there is a certain form. You feel you are in a smaller place, something more intimate. These customers are here to stay, and you know, uh, the pacing is different. And uh, the coffee, which I won't, there was just more experimentation going on within the coffee uh, because they were not duty bound to maintain consistency over a larger franchising model. You know, they had to only think for one store or three stores at the most. They did not have to think, oh, how is my coffee going to taste in Los Angeles and New York at the same time, correct? Mm -hmm. So uh, that obviously, it's almost the same as having things from a chef who runs his own restaurant or her own restaurant as opposed to going to a larger corporate or franchisee model where you have a menu which you can get anywhere in those franchisee models. Now, that being said, with all due respect to Starbucks, there were certain things which I had read the book uh, of Howard Schultz back then. And till date, uh, we cannot Whereas there are some parts where people feel like, okay, sometimes the tables may take longer to clean or whatever. But somehow they have been able to create a business which has stood the test of time and is thriving. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just looking at two different things with two different points and both have their advantages and disadvantages. And uh, both are interesting in different ways. You know, what you get to learn from one thing, you don't get to learn from another. So uh, I am fascinated by the independent coffee shops, but then there are parts and attributes I also like of chains where I don't want suspense. If I'm in a new neighborhood, let's say shooting, uh, filming somewhere in the middle of Philadelphia, I'd rather know what what to expect from that coffee shop, right? If I'm going to be there only for a day or two, because that coffee for that day is very important to me. So, uh, yeah, I think, but for me uh, personally, I just like the idea of, oh, this is my neighborhood coffee shop, or I like the idea of small business, because that's also another way of looking at entrepreneurship. Um, we, we have a bend to look at entrepreneurship as a fortune 500 company or uh, you know you have to be publicly listed but i think uh, true entrepreneurship is also to give everybody an opportunity to uh, really initiate a business and thrive within their local community as well wonderful han would you um, yeah, I think for me, just as a consumer, um, I, I mean, I love both small shops and and Starbucks. You know, I think it's whatever it is available to to me at the time at that location. I mean, for me, I will always choose lo local coffee shops first. But there are times 
where you know I'm on I five driving and Starbucks is you know it's everywhere and it's consistent and, and it's um, you know you just know what you're getting right mm -hmm. and and so there's no uh, there's no suspense in that you know if I want just a, reg a regular uh, latte knowing exactly what I want you know there's Starbucks there's always Starbucks mm -hmm. but I get excited when there's a new cafe that pops up or new coffees you know to try out um, th then I seek those smaller uh, smaller local shops to to go and explore mm. lovely because you know why I ask you that question as a, as a coffee uh, drinker you know for quite some sometimes for for um, the, the the experience of coffee uh, coming from Ethiopia as, a, as we were talking earlier on um, which you know historically originates from Ethiopia the coffee bean and the coffee experience and the roasting and so on and so forth and every uh, coffee shop especially the artisanal coffee shops have their own way of roasting and then their own way of actually um, the barista you know how they make the coffee so that experience the coffee is an experience and so that's why I wanted to know a little bit about your perspective given the the um the the, the documentary you've made especially from a, a bean perspective right because most of the larger corporation have a different way of roasting in order to keep the the consistency um so as as we're wrapping up in a way um so what are the projects are you working on right now but, but I think I wanted to, since we have this moment and you spoke about the bean and the coffee shops and okay. Starbucks, or, or yeah. I think this has been something which is worrying me a little bit um, from my recent experiences at, at uh, let's say, large scale uh, coffee shops or coffee chains mm -hmm. is, um, you know, it's getting hard and harder to associate them with what a coffee shop should be. Um, and I'm all about having a variety of drinks. Uh, you know, I've, I've enjoyed um, drinks in the summer, uh, which are slightly different. But what is happening, a trend I'm seeing recently, and I don't know if they are realizing it, many times you may have customers who have ordered let's say a cappuccino mm -hmm. and somebody may have ordered a cold drink which has one or two syrups you need to use ice and, and run it through the blender and you may have to add some fruit and some milk and this and that a larger mm -hmm. recipe with more steps in it and where I think uh, we may lose focus is if somebody is going to press an espresso button, let the espresso fall, and then go and deal with that drink. And then that drink may delay them to come back to get your milk. Or if I've ordered only two shots of espresso, which has happened to me before, by the time I get it, the temperature has completely changed because mm -hmm. somebody thought, oh, it'll be only 15 seconds more or 20 seconds more till they finish the other drink. And I think uh, 
this is something that should we have to be more cautious about um, as to what are we really as as a business you know what i mean uh, mm -hmm. because if if you start losing customers who came there for coffee right it, because now you've added a huge menu of drinks you want to offer and your baristas are overwhelmed no matter how well you have condensed the recipe to shorten the uh, you know preparation cycle mm -hmm. uh, you are still risking a lot people who are actually there for a genuinely well-made cup of coffee mm -hmm. because then they are, it's being compromised by adding a lot of burden on the barista to do miscellaneous things and now they have this app where if you if you order it on the app your drink is already ready mm. and you will see it when you are the only person in line but then there are three other coffees being made because somebody has placed the order on the app mm -hmm. uh, and that gets priority for whatever reason um, and it, it kind of um, you know repels you from the coffee shop experience right because you're just there standing for 10 minutes and 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 these drinks which don't look like coffee to the eye are being made and then and then you're waiting and many times the coffee shop doesn't even smell like a coffee shop mm -hmm. so those are just some things i feel the uh, whoever's listening to this i'm hoping that as a customer you'll think it more from the customer point of view as to how things are shifting you know uh, into a juice slash milkshake environment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Cafe, cafe, we must cafe. One of the most important things is uh, the love for this land. Every time I make coffee, I feel at peace. This is like going to your grandma's house, full of love. <laughs> they say that coffee gets in your blood, and once you're in coffee, you can't leave. It's just that inspiring. I, I concur with you. I think the smaller coffee shops have a more genuine, authentic experience for coffee. Right. Um, that's also, yes, definitely. And thank you for making that point. Um, so, Going back into to that question of where, where do you go from here? And I know it's been, uh, you made the movie in 2015. Uh, can you give us a little bit of what you, what uh, projects have you been working on and what projects are you working on, especially post COVID um, and so on? I've been working on a few, a few di different things, but um, the documentary that I'm working on now um, is about a Hungarian cellist and composer um, who perished uh, during World War II. Um, and, and that project has been ongoing for, for four years. Uh, so it's so hopefully it will come out right on time this year. <laughs> Excellent. And why uh, a Hungarian cellist, you said? Yeah. Yeah. I was filming, uh, I, I came upon his music uh, filming a case study on 
on this musician, um, Paul Hillman. And I, I sort of fell in love with his music. Um, there was something about his music that was familiar to, uh, to me, and it brought up a lot of um, memories of my, uh, of my two, two uncles who had passed away, um, who was also a musician. Um, and so I just thought, you know, if music, if this music could move me this much, there, there must be a great story behind it. And so um, going in blind, blindly again, I just kind of uh, reach out to this musician's family um, to make a short documentary. Uh, it, it's, it's turning into a feature um, <laughs> four years later, because there, there's just so much to explore and so much to uncover. And this effort to revive and, re and re recover um, his music is just something I'm passionate about. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's something that, that I've been working on. I'm also, I, I, I've been itching to make another coffee film, um, but I just don't know how, what, what, what it's going to be about yet. So that's, hopefully that, that's in the near horizon. Tell them about recovered voices also. Yes, yeah. So, uh, so this part of the documentary uh, is from a pro program called Recovered Voices at the Coleman School here in uh, Los Angeles, and their their effort is to, um, you know, highlight and play mu music by composers uh, who, you know, were suppressed and, and died during World War II because they were Jews. Mm. And and so that's that's where uh, I start started you know uh, it it that's where I start I started exploring um, Paul Hermann's work but there there's a just uh, a wide um, sort of list of compo of music and composers during that time that you know that the the public don't know about and you know never heard of but given better circumstances you know their names and their music would have been in our history now you know as one of the greats right wonderful thank you yes so for me uh, i've been working on a couple of criminal justice films uh, related to women's prisons in california mm -hmm. Uh, one is an investigative one. Uh, the second one is more like a memoir almost, uh, but animated uh, for uh, a woman who served a life sentence. So, uh, but it, it also looks, one of them looks at it as a uh, lens through of mass incarceration and race and, uh, you know, the exploitation and the war, uh, war on drugs. The second one is more about institutional negligence and uh, indifference towards uh, inmates. And so those are two things uh, which are again on the slow, larger in production horizon. And then I do um, cinematography for 
uh, I teach, as I said, so we do two films per year at the college. We shoot them. Those are fiction films. Mm -hmm. um, so we've had the last two years, both of our films at, at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, one of them was about uh, the Armenian uh, genocide uh, based on a true story. And the second one, uh, which we have playing at, at Cannes in July, actually, um, it's called uh, Broken Layers. It's about uh, a half Syrian and half Mexican army veteran who uh, comes back from war and, uh, you know, tries to find her identity in the US. Um, so those are two films. And then I'm producing like one which is called Dog Walk Home. If you Google Dog Walk Home film, it mm -hmm. will show up. Um, that again has to do with uh, the relationship of service dogs and their value in uh, curing post-traumatic stress disorder in, in veterans. So mm. those are some of the projects we have been working. So uh, let me ask you one final question, I would say is, uh, why documentaries? I think, I think uh, they are the easiest and most friendly way to engage an audience, inform them, educate them, and create a debate. You know, uh, if you look at the current generation, as I said, I teach in a college, I cannot expect them to read War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. I cannot expect them to read Chekhov because those books were written in a different time, in a different society, right? In a different era altogether. And these people don't find any connecting points. So documentaries are something which are so contemporary and immediate as a medium. And a lot of tools which were only accessible to high-end storytelling in fiction and narrative filmmaking is now available to documentaries. Uh, let's say illustrations, animations, and, uh, more cheaper cameras, uh, uh, even a lot of uh, manpower, which you are fiction is now available. Basically, a documentary in today's time can shape itself in a way where you can almost customize really efficiently how to design the information as a story and you can find very strong coherent ways in which it can transmit that information to an audience and that that to me if you want to create an impact or social change is the most powerful tool we have right now I mean, if you look at the last five years, look what podcasts have done. There is a podcast about everything and it can inform you. You can, you can be doing dishes or you can be taking a walk. You can listen half an hour every day, mm -hmm. right? Very powerful. So documentaries is the same. You have audio, you have uh, visual. And uh, also we are, the current generation is receptive of that as a medium. 
you know they don't really differentiate like our film released in the same cinemas where they would have played batman or any other film and people mm-hmm. showed up to full houses right uh, a decade ago that wouldn't happen easily so we are in the right time where it's the most powerful tool to disseminate information and create social change so uh, mm-hmm. i mean that's why we chose documentary i'm inspired by stories that you know that that are you know w- would otherwise n- not have been known you know at all um so i'm just i'm curious to to find these topics and stories that that are are you know aren't in the regular media that aren't you know that 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 are just regular everyday people going about their life but but you know but it's a, it, it it's extraordinary in its own way and uh that's where i you know i chose documentary because because of that because i want to highlight these you know stories and people that that that, that are just going about their regular lives mm. wonderful well thank you very much uh, for giving me this opportunity to interview you it's always good to know uh who are uh, who is telling the story you know what is the perspective and what's the journey of making uh, a movie a film a documentary and so thank you uh, han thank you vaishal uh, i look forward to learning more about your future and upcoming projects keep me posted and i'll definitely share with you uh, once we have it online uh, i'll make sure to send you that link thank you very much thank, thank you. you so much for having us thank you thank Bye-bye. you Bye-bye. do follow us subscribe to our